the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. With the issue of our security apparatus and the projection of U.S. military power around the world being somewhat in question, it's not clear which comes first, the deterioration and decline of our international security or of our international monetary system. When one or the other goes, I think you're talking about not only the end of pretense, but the beginning of a very hard, hard reality. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. I was having lunch at one of the oldest restaurants in Durango, Dave. You know, here in Durango, restaurants come and go, especially right now when people are having a hard time getting help. But I was sitting and talking to the owner of a Chinese food restaurant over on Main Street that I, I like to go to. I like to buy a book every once in a while, just sit have Chinese food, read for an hour or two. And uh, as I was talking to her, you know, it's interesting. We've been here almost 30 years here in Durango. And I had never, I had talked to her, but I had never really sat down and talked to her about who she was before Chinese food restaurant ownership. And she had higher degrees in international diplomacy. And I knew that she, I had asked her, uh, what started the conversation, Dave, was I had said, are you doing any traveling right now? Because I knew she had family in Taiwan. And she said, no, no, I'm not doing any traveling right now. And I saw actually a tear start to well up in her eye. And the longer we talked, the more I realized that what occurred in Afghanistan a few weeks ago had direct impact on her and her family in Taiwan. The elephant in the room, Dave, is not Afghanistan. The elephant in the room is that we've been putting on airs of supremacy that maybe we as the nation no longer have. You know, it's pretty interesting to watch the news feed from Financial Times, Xi Jinping is aiming to redraw China's social contract or uh, Chinese control revolution, or even, you know, allowing George Soros uh, to have a voice in the op-ed section. Investors in Xi's China face a rude awakening. There's a reality which is firming up within China. We're talking about the economy and the financial system, which necessitates a certain political activity. And, And all of these things are happening at a very unique time. Perhaps it's coincidental, but, you know, we can look to our own economy. You know, last week we had non-farm payroll numbers, which were not as bad as they sounded. They were worse. The expectation was for 750,000 jobs to be created. It was far less than that, 235,000. That was a reported number, but 143,000 of those were created statistically from the birth death models, not real jobs created Right. So that's an issue. On top of that, you had wages, which were increasing, supporting the idea of inflation coming at the same time an economy is slowing. There's a word for that. Stagflation. Yeah. And China, their economy is slowing, too. So you can see different types of actions maybe on the horizon based on that. And it was consistent both looking at their purchasing managers indexes for manufacturing and services. Both numbers were ugly. You could argue it's temporary. Except the dominant growth factor in China has been in that massive malinvestment in real estate development. And as we've talked for, for a number of weeks now, Evergrande is circling the drain. This $300 billion, this is a very large company. Their bonds were paying like 40 some odd percent, you had mentioned last week. 
I mean, yeah. that, that is the sign of bankruptcy. And the value of those bonds declined between 25 and 35% again hmm. last Friday. Wow. So yields wow. even higher. So yeah, again, you can argue it's temporary, but if it is the malinvestment in real estate, which has given them very high growth rates, then you have to expect that slower growth is an inevitability now that they're looking at that not being a, a huge contributor to those economic growth rates. So to my mind, it does not come as a surprise, again, if they're headed towards a longer-term economic decline, that these appeals to patriotism and political fundamentalism are on the rise. The changes in tone from Xi Jinping are very ominous, and I think they're emboldened by mm -hmm. Biden's debacle. So the primary audience for Xi is a domestic one. It's not an international one. Uh, and convincing the Chinese that a hard road ahead is a good one if they're committed to the party. What that sounds like is preparation for conflict of one sort or another. Domestic? Is it geopolitical? Yeah, time will tell. It's important to note when we look at world politics, not all countries are operating out of the aggressive boldness standpoint. A lot of times they're very defensive. And, you know, Xi Jinping probably is looking at his economy and saying, you know what, time to ramp up the patriotism. When I talked to the lady who owned this uh, restaurant, you know, like I said, her major was international diplomacy. And, you know, she joked, she said, I, I came fishing here in Durango 30 years ago. I thought I was going to actually go into diplomacy at the UN. And I realized I think I'd rather just own a restaurant in Durango. And she said, I think I made a good decision. I'm doing diplomacy one stomach at a time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as we talked, she said, because I brought up China slowing down and I brought up the credit bubble in China and, and the vulnerability that you've been bringing out, Dave, as we've been talking. And she said, yes, but they probably can use that as a negotiating chip against America. And her concern, of course, she said 24 million people in Taiwan, that's where her family's from, can't possibly stand up to over a billion people in China should that become the decision. Right. Well, you know, thinking about Afghanistan and the realization that our dysfunction as a nation is very much in focus, it took me back to an old memory, Brookline, Massachusetts, 1999. And that's when you guys first got married, right? That's when we first got married, yeah. and it was our first dinner party. Oh, really? Our first oh. dinner party as a couple. So we had a dear friend of mine from Denver. Uh, he was on the East Coast, all-American lacrosse player, recently graduated from Middlebury, and was an aspiring professional musician, already traveling with a band, still traveling with that band, still playing music, traveling the world, honing his craft. Mm. There was also a, a freshman from Harvard that was a good friend then, still a good friend today, and then there was an accomplished couple that I had known for half my life. He was working on a PhD at Boston University. So it's kind of a, a fun mix of people. Yeah. Um, well, and that's something you and Mary Catherine love to do. I mean, you love to invite a different type of group together because you like the conversation and the food. Yeah, and we thought this was well curated. So anyways, the PhD candidate shows up an hour late and completely sauced. No, oh, he showed up already drunk, huh? <laughs> he immediately starts in on an art critique, you know, explaining all the unfortunate choices that we've made, hmm. you know, the things that are hanging on our walls and why those canvases reflect the worst of continental philosophy and the postmodern ideal. Hmm. 
Little did he know that half of those canvases were painted by my wife. Oh, no. So I was thrust into this intellectual debate on art and how not all art has to be mimetic to be meaningful. It doesn't have to be a perfect replication of the natural world in order to be, quote unquote, beautiful or have significant message. To what it. did the other guests do? I mean, this had to be uncomfortable. Oh, it's very awkward. Awkward to say the least. Um, our other guests, I think they were stunned. Mm. Here is the eldest among us acting worse than a frat boy. In spite of all his attempts at sort of scholarship and elevated importance and, and literary Well, he was working and, on a PhD, Dave. I mean, everyone should stop and listen. He was also working on the better part of a fifth, I think, before he got there. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, as he moved from sauced to sort of belligerently drunk, um, he excused himself for a few minutes to go to the powder room. And I, I looked at his wife and I simply said, bless your soul. Mm-hmm. For everyone at the table, it was obviously uncomfortable, but his wife had become so accustomed to keeping up appearances. She thought that his behavior and, and their family dysfunction was concealed. That, that, I mean, you covered over by eloquence and mm. astute observation and, and her very honed ability to distract from his personal weaknesses and proclivities. Which, but there was an elephant in the room. Yeah. And it turns yeah. out this is a way of life, not just a one-off event for him. He's got yeah. some addictive issues and... She was the classic enabler. Mm-hmm. So for the first time in her adult life, pretense comes crashing down with three words, bless your soul. Hmm. And that moment where she knew that we knew the king had no clothes was enough for her. Pretending was over after decades of playing games so that he or, or I guess they didn't look bad. It was done. Hmm. She left him the next day. Really? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> all I said in a sympathetic tone was, bless your soul. Right. You know, revealing a fragility that had long existed, but was rarely exposed. But this time it was absolutely obvious. Yeah. So, I mean, Afghanistan, again, it's it's this issue of revealing a fragility. And yeah, I, I go back to The Clash, if you know the band. Yeah. We're into oh, musical yeah. references these days. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But Should you, I if you're going to sing. No, uh, I won't. Yeah, because Robert told me I can't sing anymore. And I so, know. Yeah. Should I stay or should I go? Yeah. Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. Right. Right. So there's that issue. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is, again, where I, I think back to Brookline, Massachusetts, and I think there's... There's dysfunction. We know there's dysfunction in the American system. I'm not a complete cynic. I'm not a total cynic. But there's some observations from our 20 or I guess you could count it even 40 year failure in Afghanistan. And you were thinking about this because of Afghanistan, because, you know, should we stay or should we go or should we have ever been there in the first place? But also it doesn't take much to reveal weakness. And I think that's where, again, yeah. the, the Chinese are our audience. And the whole world is our audience. They look and they have a different set of questions they can ask. Isn't it amazing how Afghanistan has been so revealing to the two superpowers? Because in the 70s, when Russia came into Afghanistan, it revealed that they ultimately were going to fail. I mean, th- that was the precursor to I mean, Reagan coming in and ultimately the whole thing falling apart. Well, the British failed there twice in the 1800s. So it's it's I mean... 
what's the famous quote from the Princess Bride? Yeah. Never get involved in a land war in Asia? Yeah, that's, that's right. Now, I think he was talking more about like what Napoleon did and what right. Hitler did. But you're right. Afghanistan's a place to sort of hands off. Okay. But you said a 20-year failure in Afghanistan or a 40-year failure. Because really, if you go back to the 1970s, that failure started with Russia. Uh, yeah. And we were we were involved in fighting not against the Taliban, but with the Mujahideen, which basically became the Taliban. And we did leave our weapons there last time, too, and they used them against us later, yes. (laughs) But again, so under the facade of strength, there are dysfunctional aspects to our foreign policy and strategic military engagements around the world. Mm -hmm. It's not the military or our technological capabilities on the battlefield that are lacking. And as we've watched, I mean, this is where the dysfunction comes in. You've got every arm of government, now the intelligence community and the military, stepping into partisan politics. Mm -hmm. That, to me, does sort of cast a shadow over how our democracy is functioning, because there's certain aspects that should not involve who's in office and what policies are in play that are strictly nonpartisan. I I think that should be the intelligence community. I think that should be the military. I think basically you look at the military's creeds and codes and they they tie to the Constitution. They don't tie to personality or particular political party. Right. And speaking of personalities, I mean, the White House is more than a man. Uh, You know, we oftentimes get distracted by saying, well, this was Joe Biden and this is ineptness on his part. No, no, no. This is much bigger. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It goes beyond Biden and a teleprompter. But I think what's missing today, and, and I, I say this somewhat cautiously, waiting for my dad to scold me or something, but there is no Kissinger. Right. There is no Zbigniew Brzezinski. You didn't have to agree with these guys, but they did play chess with the entire world chessboard. That's right. Yeah. Love them or hate them. They both thought in grand strategy terms and operated out of a robust framework. But you may not have liked the framework. No. And back then, we really were unchallengeable as the superpower. But, you know, if you look at the look at our allies right now, they're looking at us and they're going, you know, I don't know that I like you as the hegemon of the world. Harold James is keen to point out the not so coincidental cracks that emerge in a currency system alongside the collapse of a security system. We're going to have him on here in, in a few weeks, right? Yep. Yeah. He'll join us in a couple of weeks. And, and he says it becomes more likely that the old security system will be tested in ways that previously seemed unimaginable. Hmm. In the current case, all eyes are on the Baltics and Taiwan. End quote. Hmm. So he looks at 1931, where, again, we had the League of Nations, but that came to be known as a real paper tiger as Japan orchestrated a false flag event, invaded Manchuria. And again, we couldn't do anything. None of the members of the League of Nations could do anything. And at the same time, you've got the British coming off the gold standard that same year. Massive devaluation. Fast forward to 1971, you've got the Nixon shock, post-Vietnam debacle, U.S. dollar devaluation. And the question there is 2021. Kabul? And who knows what happens to the dollar? But, But James points out that the international security system and the monetary order seem to be disrupted at the same time. Well, and as soon as you challenge the hegemony of the United States, you immediately challenge the value of the dollar. Yeah, so here we are sitting around the table. Today we have NATO, we have our allies in Asia, we have more than a few countries that neither relish our role on the world stage or at this point respect what we've become. 
And they're looking and saying, look, we don't like unilateral actions. We don't like egocentricity. We don't like your narrow focus. We don't like your nearsightedness, not particularly self-aware. I mean, these are all criticisms that can be laid at our domestic policies, at our foreign policies. There's a likeness of the 1970s here. And it's not just in the unstable conditions set for our currency. I think we can agree that that's there, but it's in our standing globally. Again, go back to the 70s, post-Vietnam, post-Nixon, pre-devaluation, pre-economic stagnation. Mm -hmm. We had a decent guy in office that was not a strong leader. You know, and, and, and Nixon, in some respects, like Trump, toxic enough for the personality pendulum to swing towards feebleness. And that's what we've ended up with, this generation's Jimmy Carter. So that that's an interesting read there, you know, because Nixon. Yeah, I remember Nixon. I remember Nixon and a lot of the listeners do. And then we remember Carter. I was it's funny. I was out running this morning and I was actually thinking about Carter and what a nice guy he was. Yeah. Yeah. But what kind of weakness that he exuded as far as uh, international politics. It was horrible, really, at the time. It's difficult for me to say this because I'd like to think that the quality of a person is what shows up in the quality of the job that they do. Right. And yet here is a quality human being who wasn't a very good president. Right. And it didn't matter how good he was as a human being. Probably he a very a nice guy to have dinner president. with. He, he might have been a nice guy. He probably wouldn't have criticized your art. Okay, let's put it that way. I, he would have been much more diplomatic. <laughs> he would have shown up sober. In the South. Well, yeah. I don't know. In the South, sometimes they don't show up sober. But you know, Ken Rogoff agrees. This is more and more like the 70s. And hmm. stagflation seems to be more and more probable. Looking at the 70s, you know, obviously history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And looking at the 70s, you look at what happened to the value of the dollar throughout the 1970s. Not only did we have the high inflation of the Carter years, but we actually had a devaluation in the early 70s when the dollar was taken off the gold standard. Yeah, external pressures mounting, uh, debt starting to rise, fiscal obligations, uh, also, you know, testing limits. And you know, it would appear that we're back to that early 70s scenario, deteriorating fundamentals, which are likely to show up as currency pressure, high levels mm -hmm. of debt, shrinking interest in financing our trade deficit, inflationary consequences, uh, both from our monetary and, and, and frankly, even more so from our fiscal policy, right? Match that up with economic unproductivity, more people on the dole, less people contributing to the tax coffers. Well, and we've got crisis. We had crisis in the 70s. Remember, it was crisis management. Yeah, and, and I think you could argue to some degree inept leadership in the context of crisis today. If the best you can do is berate and justify rather than inspire, you've got problems. Mm -hmm. And it shows up in, in you know, the, the, the they're not likability measures. What are the polls where you, do people like Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden. Those numbers continue to slide. But a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, but but Trump's the cause of all of this. You know, I guess people just pick sides and no matter what the case is, they just they blame the other side. Yeah, I think we tried to blame Trump, but I think you could also go back to Obama. There wasn't really a clear, coherent foreign policy under Obama. If anything, Trump came along and just started blowing things up. And a part of what was blown up are agreements that he didn't think made sense. So he had mm -hmm. sort of the brash businessman hat on saying, it's not good for me. It's not good for us as a country. We're, we're out. We're done. But I think you can see that our dysfunctions predated him and are to some degree embedded in our institutions. Certainly when you think of Afghanistan, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, this was Bush 
<laughs> before it was anyone else. Right. You know, the Republicans treated Bush like a Republican. The Republicans did not treat Trump like a Republican. No, no, no. He, Trump was never a part of the Republican establishment. He represented a threat to both the Democrats and the Republicans. So his his party showed him no loyalty, which is kind of an odd thing. So you know, in the end, going back to the dinner party in Brookline, Massachusetts, the Democrats pretend all is well. And the Republicans pretend all is well, with the exception of Trump. Again, they, they have these pretenses and they cover for their man. Until the elephant in the room is exposed. Right. 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 And, and that happened with, you said she left him the next day. Well, when others perceive weakness, and this is where politics and international relations are, are different than you know, a marriage relationship. When others perceive weakness, there is opportunity to push for an advantage. For mm. Carter, it was the Iran hostage crisis that revealed a softness. The Russians that came, that came right before the Russians went into Afghanistan. Yeah, the Russians were operating out of insecurity, and I think that's worth noting. This was not sort of a thrust of strength. They knew that we held a strategic nuclear advantage, and Afghanistan provided an opportunity to move the Marxist revolutionary needle in country while projecting strength internationally. Again, even if that projection was coming from an insecurity. You know, and we learned that from Dr. Friedman. When Dr. Friedman comes on, he's like, no, Russia may have looked like they were strong, but they were insecure. You know, we all have our habits of you can meet with somebody and you can go, gosh, they've gone through an awful lot in their past or a dog that's been abused. OK, uh, we were just with some people this weekend who adopted a dog that they know was horribly abused the first year of his life. Well, it's a difficult dog, but they have loved it to where it can be domesticated, but it still has those tendencies of lack of trust and the Russians. You know, Dr. Friedman has told us that the Russians being invaded over and over and over, they, they want Ukraine just to have that 500 mile buffer. So the Russians in the 1970s seemed, I can remember this, they seem like a superpower because of the way they portrayed themselves. But when you really looked under the surface, and I, it's taken me till now, when you really look under the surface, there was not a lot there. But the, by the late 1970s, they understood that they didn't have the technology to respond fast enough. If we sent the first missiles, they would lose their command and control capabilities and they would be unable to volley back. So they sensed weakness and they went into they Afghanistan. Correct. So November 79 was the Iranian hostage crisis. Yeah. Right. That's November. December of 79 was the Afghan invasion by the Soviets. Treated as a coincidence, if you like, but timing looked suspiciously opportunistic by the Soviets. Carter, in that context, was a weak player. He was a weak player personally. I'm, again, I'm not saying that he was the only person on watch. Carter failed to respond quickly to the Iranian revolutionaries, and that ended up being a defining factor in a single-term presidency. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much he knew of our State Department's involvement in the overthrow of the Shah and in the rise of Khomeini. Was that why his handlers wouldn't let him act on Iran? Again, there was a calculus, I'm sure, uh, but as far as the public was concerned, Carter just showed up as a weak guy. Do you sense something similar right now? Because it's just awfully strange that Biden is so he's just not present at all during this period of time. Well, one thing's for sure, at least in Afghanistan, Carter did have coming back to Carter for just a minute. He did have the gumption to mount a response, working with Pakistanis and Saudis to create a motivated anti-Russian fighting force. And, and frankly, it was sort of at a low level until Reagan 
took office, and then that project really started rolling. Right. So the Saudis exported their Salafist radicals, which was kind of an interesting thing to export. You know, solve one problem, solve two problems. Hmm. And then they provided funding as well. We threw in arms and oversight and training. The Pakistanis threw in intelligence and training. And it was it was this little triumvirate that was working against the Soviet Union for 10 years. It was Operation Cyclone. And, and it just siphoned all their resources and they just, it weakened them. Yeah. So maybe we did learn something from Vietnam. We bled the Russians of their finite resources, damaged their morale, and ultimately contributed to their collapse. So this owner of this Chinese food restaurant, uh, who has her higher degrees in international diplomacy, who has family in Taiwan, who's watching China, is Xi Jinping watching as well? Yeah, the Chinese are watching. Xi Jinping has his own domestic agenda, of course, and that may very well parlay into a larger strategic canvas. Hmm. You know, we, we don't know that time will tell. It's not just the U.S. pulling away from Afghanistan, which might on one level convey weakness, but, but, but it's the question of where that attention will now be turned. If our resources and energies are no longer going to that segment in the Middle East, where are we going to turn our attention? And I don't remember if it was mentioned Pei or Victor Xi on our program that described the Chinese as operating with a certain degree of insecurity. Sounds only because, familiar. Only yeah. because they were overestimating the U.S.'s coherent U.S. grand strategy. Hmm. You know, they think we've got something going on. They think we're playing a long game. We think they're playing a long game. Maybe nobody's playing a long game. But, but insecurity is a hell of a thing to deal with when you're on the other side of the table. Could you imagine a gunfight where you've got two insecure guys or at least one insecure guy? Okay. He thinks that the other's going to pull the trigger. Right. So if the, if the Chinese thought we might take our military resources and repurpose them towards an Indo-Pacific theater, the question of White House leadership and actions that they should be taking now, this is the actions of the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, that becomes critical because now it's a question of what can we do, what should we do if there's a larger strategic refocus and we all of a sudden are in this influence, this sphere of influence. Who are we dealing with today? Who might we be dealing with tomorrow? What are the actions we should take in light of what we see? Well, and if you're insecure... And so far, you've been running on credit. Now, I'm not talking about us, but if you're insecure and you're running only on this gigantic credit bubble, a slowing of the economy right now may trigger that insecurity index. Well, it may trigger actions which cover over a lot of the things which you, you don't necessarily have the resources to deal with in terms of fixing the economic rebalancing. Some of the rebalancing we talked about last week, primary, secondary, tertiary, you remember that? Well, what if you can't move the needle fast enough and your economy is, is moving into a regressive, it's moving into decline. Yep. What do you do? Soros, your favorite. Wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times last week, which argues for a collapse in the Chinese financial markets. Yeah. And his concern is that passive indexing, is your index funds, have allocated trillions of dollars into global markets. And Chinese companies are at the top of those lists. Hmm. So you've got Alibaba and Tencent. They're everywhere. They're in everything. ETFs, mutual funds. Buffett owns some Chinese listed stocks as well. Soros was keen to point out that the crackdown in China is real. Mm. The CCP is is taking board seats and influential stakes in particular companies to gain access to data with these publicly traded companies and to bring influence and control over them. Hmm. 
that's almost nationalization right there. Yeah, well, and, and, and Soros says this, Xi regards all Chinese companies as an instrument of a one-party state. And that is nationalization. Right. Now, yeah. now to some degree, I, I think you could almost say Biden sees all companies as instruments of a one-party state. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's not appropriate. But <laughs> speaking to investor Naivet, Soros goes on to say that Xi's China is not a China they know. That is, investors don't know this environment. Hmm. He's putting in place an updated version of Mao Zedong's party. No investor has any experience of that China because there were no stock markets in Mao's time. Hence, the rude awakening that awaits them. Dave, that's the difference between prediction and participation. You can participate in something like cryptocurrency. You've got 13 or 14 years of history with cryptocurrency, so you're more than welcome to participate. But you can't predict because you don't have any history that goes before that. What we have right now, you and I have been intrigued over the last, oh, 10 years or so to see China rise, continue to buy gold, and be a quasi-communist, quasi-free market state. It was like, how are they getting away with this? How, how do you do both? But things are changing under Xi. We spent a lot of time last week with the language he was using. Again, weighing the words of Xi Jinping. This is not speculation. He's calling attention to what he describes as changes unseen in a century. Yeah. Now, the, the Financial Times editorial board interprets that as the rise of China and the relative decline of the U.S.-led Western power. That's how they translate those particular words, changes unseen in a century. The Bloomberg Wire covered Xi's comments first, and then over the weekend, the Financial Times caught up with an evaluation and an analysis of his words. And to say that the Financial Times was concerned would be putting it lightly. It's unrealistic to expect a peaceful life without struggle. This is all a part of Xi Jinping's comments. We must uphold China's sovereignty, security, and development interests with unprecedented determination. I'm just thinking out loud here. Financial Times is actually probably analyzing this right because they're British and they've been through this before. Financial Times, granted, it's an international document, but isn't it British? Aren't the Brits maybe saying, you know, we've seen this because we've been through this? James's observation that the cracks in the security system emerge about the same time as you see cracks in the currency system is fascinating. 317121. And, you know, there is 1931, and 2021. The world security apparatus to, to a large degree when you look at you know the glue that holds everything together it was our air base bagram where all of our allies were operating from right we provided a platform for participation and so when i say our security system i'm not saying that to exclude any of our allies that participated mm -hmm. considerably major contributions but if our system is cracking, their system is cracking. And if the dollar system is cracking at the same time, that becomes very, very interesting. There's, there's a Chinese blogger who describes, as he's looking at the Chinese changes of late, and he says, there is a monumental change taking place in China. The economic, financial, cultural, and political spheres are undergoing a profound revolution. It marks a return of power from capitalist cliques to the people 
it is a return to the revolutionary spirit, to heroism, to courage. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, essentially Xi is pivoting from what was a period of opening up, 1978 following Deng Xiaoping, to about the year 2020. This is a new era. And we can talk about common prosperity. Last week we said, eh, maybe it's common poverty. What is clear is that common prosperity is not egalitarianism. <laughs> there's still the ruling elite. There still is the Politburo. There still is those who have the power. And then there's the, the series of buy-offs. To so the you're not below. getting a nationwide middle class, beautiful, everyone. You no, know, what you're getting still is the division between the rich and the poor. It's just different. Right. And, and it's actually a return to sort of pre-democratic ideas of, of state rule and who were the original 1%. The original 1% were the people who are most connected to power. And you could buy seats of power. You could control seats of power. But if you were in a position of, of, of political prestige, you accumulated wealth only on that basis. Well, and this was the concern of this lady that I talked to at the Chinese food restaurant. Taiwan has tasted free market economics, and now it looks like that may be taken. Well, and China has tasted of free market economics. Yeah. But very interestingly, look where the neutralization has occurred as you're looking at a change in policy on a domestic basis in China. Anyone who could potentially mount an army, and I'm not talking about a physical military army, but an army in the world of social media, an army in the world of public opinion, just keep in mind, China has, has always been very, very volatile when it comes to peasant uprisings. Right. I mean, this goes back thousands of years. The biggest peasant uprisings and, and the most catastrophic in terms of lives lost, and anywhere from 1 million to 20 million people dying in conflicts, welcome to China. You know, and that, that's where I think Xi's been very deliberate about making sure that any advancement in an alternative voice simply goes away. So, yeah, again, the comment from the Financial Times, I think it soberly points to an adjustment of internal controls and priorities. And it remains to be seen if those internal priorities coincide with a more expansive foreign policy agenda. And of course, we think of Taiwan as a part of Chinese foreign policy. It's not. For the Chinese Communist Party, Taiwan is a matter of national security. You go back to Xi's comment earlier, this is national security. This is sovereign integrity, which is why they may very well take some initiative here. Yeah, and so let's just look at the rest of the world. I mean, you're seeing change in the rest of the world from Japan to the United States. Yeah, you've got Japan is losing its prime minister. You've got Biden, and he's not going to stand for the next election. Biden is weak. Other allies might question our resolve in a conflict with China. The, the Aussies and Brits come to mind. If China thinks we may, in time, refocus our strategic energies to blocking the development interests of their country, the odds of a Taiwanese invasion are significantly higher post-Kabul. Again, it's where we put our energy. And if they think our energy is shifting there, they can look at a series of, of shifts within those who are in leadership, Japan, the U.S., and say, if we're going to do something, we do it now. Yeah. We yeah. can push now. We may not be able to push later. Imagine if they tried to invade Taiwan and Trump were in power. Right. I think you would see a full-scale military response. I'm not sure we see that under Biden. Well, we're seeing with Xi that he is serious. He's already sending that message to those who might oppose him or might uh, have a little bit too much money. 
certainly on a domestic basis, he's consolidated his executive power. And he's been doing this for a number of years. Uh, corporate titans have been humbled. Some of them have been killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's gone after the technology entrepreneurs. That was a way of more firmly establishing his monopoly on communication and continue to maintain a monopoly of, of violence, you know, silencing dissent. I one time saw a video that I think Saddam Hussein wanted to be shot. And what he did was, I, I don't know if you saw this video, but it was amazing. He got his leaders into a room. It was a like a movie theater, that size. And he started speaking and they were all clapping and what have you. And then he started calling people out and you could see the fear on their face because what he was doing was he was exercising power. These men knew they were going to go on to be executed. At first, they thought they were being complimented and then they were being singled out, pulled out and actually condemned uh, right there in the meeting. That was how he showed his power. I'm wondering, I want to go back to peasant uprisings, because, you know, if you are trying to control over a billion people and the economy is booming, you're okay. You can borrow money, booming, booming, booming. If the economy slows or if we have, like what Soros was talking about, a, a literal financial collapse in China, how are you going to consolidate power other than through uh, just bullying, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, peasant uprisings, as I mentioned, are more common in the history of China than any other country on the planet. And I don't think Xi is is a populist. Uh, If you look at kind of his rise to fame, he is not a new Mao in that sense. He does know how to use populist energy to target his potential enemies. But Xi is not Mao. Mm -hmm. He is not overthrowing an established order in the name of the people. He is fortifying a power structure that allows for him to maintain control indefinitely. Sort of the ruler of a new dynasty. Uh, Reminds me a little of Putin. You know, Putin, he always found a way to continue to be a leader. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at the 2012 to present time frame. And so you've got, you know, two possible elections, five-year terms. Mm -hmm. In this period of time from 2012 to the present, Xi has cleansed the party of all opposition and the Politburo competition, which he had two younger guys, they're out, gone. Mm. And in that time frame, he's also changed the rules on the limits where you had two five-year terms that would have removed him from office. Next year would have been his final year. That the move that he made allows him to remain in power indefinitely. Yeah, so who's king of the world? Uh, that would be me, or right. at least king of China. So looking at the leveling taking place across corporate China, you can see that there's further enclaves of power and alternative voices for opposition, which are being neutralized by Xi. Why now? Well, I think it's very clear. You come into 2022 when what would have been sort of the passing of the baton of power. You know, this is yeah, huge in Tao and others have peacefully done this. Well, he has no intention of passing the baton. So you're a billionaire in China right now. You just became very philanthropic. It's time to give a little money away, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as far as Xi Jinping is concerned, the ends justify the means. He'll do whatever it takes. He'll do whatever it takes. To your point, we mentioned the tertiary form of redistribution last week. Alibaba followed Tencent last week, right after we're talking about it. On Thursday, Alibaba does the same thing that Tencent did a month ago, pledging $15.5 billion to invest in economic and social development, a.k.a. common prosperity. (laughs) As you said last week, gun to the head, generosity. We don't want to come across either saying that the U.S. military is not strong and not a very pervasive force if it was used 
in a way that had determination or deliberate action. Okay, so from a Chinese perspective, you're talking about working from insecurity. They have a reason to still be insecure. You had mentioned if Taiwan were invaded during uh, Trump's time, well, the military would have intervened. It's the same thing with South and North Korea. The military was ready to intervene. Yeah. And so we go back to U.S. credibility. What we lack in grand strategy and credibility related to grand strategy, we may well make up for in the application of brute force, right? Our, our military muscle is still a very capable piece on the board, how it's used, when it's used, if it's used, those are all secondary questions, but it's something you still have to keep in the equation. It's massive and it's tactically very, very effective. So the question returns to Chinese instability, Chinese instability and insecurity and a desire to act in a time frame where alliances and partnerships are frayed. Is there a better time for them to act than now? Well, okay. So if perceptions of the dollar start to fail, I mean, the bond market, what is the bond market if the dollar's not strong? The U.S. bond market. Yeah. So again, circling back to U.S. credibility, not just from a military perspective, but the U.S. bond market is held together by credibility. The U.S. dollar is buttressed by credibility. And, you know, you remove the pretense, <laughs> you remove the pretense, say something like, bless your soul, hmm. or I know it's not easy. Or as they say in the South, bless your heart. <laughs> mm. And 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 the question is, what comes unraveled? What comes unraveled? Does everything come unraveled? Does nothing come unraveled? There's a lot of pretense relating to U.S. credibility, and we can maintain it for a long period of time. We don't see a, a rival there to take our place. So maybe this game goes on another 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we see the security apparatus internationally degrade at the same time as the monetary system degrades in a very significant way. And it's amazing how these wars are played, very similar to, you know, the United States with the U.S. Treasury uh, market and the SWIFT transfer system. Again, I go back to this conversation that I had Friday, and it really was a good conversation with a lady that I should have had this conversation with almost 30 years ago, you know, other than just saying hi and I'll take the number one or, or you know, whatever. But it became very real to me because I'm talking to somebody who understands not only international politics, but she understands it from a personal level. Uh, she talked about her parents in their 80s. She would love for them to come over to the United States. But they're Taiwanese. They're, they're like, no, no, we're, we're home. Whatever happens, we're home. But Taiwan, you know, we talk about how China may handle Taiwan. They've already been handling Taiwan. They cut off pineapple imports into China, and it almost, it almost crushed the pineapple industry. I didn't realize that. But Taiwan needs that. And all China has to do is say, we'll stop buying your pineapples for a little while, or we can do this, or we can do that. Again, this boils down, war is fought with economics first, right? Yeah, you know, you look at the technological dependencies that we have as a country on Taiwan. And, you know, Taiwan represents a unique opportunity for the Chinese hmm. and a particular vulnerability for the U.S. An indirect attack on the U.S. economy could include extending our supply chain issues indefinitely, hmm. adding to productivity constraints indefinitely. At the same time, you would be pushing up the cost of finished goods, right? So we're back to this theme of stagflation. What if stagflation moves into high gear because we can't access what we need? Like chips. Like chips. I'm thinking yeah. Taiwan Semiconductor. We're, we're almost there now. You know, Nuriel Rabini argues that 
COVID variants are boosting production costs and reducing output growth and constraining labor supplies. Well, great. What if it wasn't just COVID variants? What if it was a Chinese choice to be involved in Taiwan? Boots on the ground. What does that do to nascent stagflationary trends in the United States? And again, a unique opportunity for the Chinese. I say that because it's very much an indirect attack on the U.S. economy. Mm. Very much an indirect attack. They've been able to see in real time, if you can disturb the supply chain, there's all kinds of ripple effects. And we're now dealing with, again, Rabini sees it as sort of a nascent uh, stagflation. And Ken Rogoff would have said, no, six months ago, I would have said, not a chance. There's no chance for stagflation. Now, we basically have it. Isn't it amazing that the printing of money always, uh, I like Milton Friedman, okay? The printing of money always is what creates inflation. But there's always another reason when it happens. What you're talking about here, this stagflation, we'll look back in the rearview mirror and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, but that had to do with China. Right. So, I mean, core inflation is now moving as we get towards the year end, probably see 4%. And again, core takes out the energy and food, the, the, the highly volatile stuff. So in the bigger picture, you've got deglobalization trends. We've talked about that many times, including with Harold James, who will be joining us in a few weeks. You have the Chinese trade war, which, again, began under Trump, but may be a permanent fixture as trade war becomes cold war becomes whatever kind of war. The question is, which policies are shifted, which have a a direct impact on our total supply chain system and turns it to chaos? So maintaining pretense is pretty important. There's a lot at stake if somebody says, hey, hey, there's really an elephant in the room. We've moved so far, Kevin, is to make believe our new reality. Modern monetary theory would say we can ignore all fundamentals. You thought that having too much debt was going to cause dollar destabilization at some point in the future. Oh, how mistaken you were. Mm. We can ignore all the fundamentals. Again, MMT is almost like the, the grandest of all grand pretenses. We can do anything we want for as long as we want, and there will be no consequences, right? So I would argue that dollar stability is seriously in question, where if you're looking at the fundamental case for the dollar, we've seen deterioration and we should see even more deterioration. Now, like so many straws on a camel's back, there is an issue in terms of how long the dollar can maintain its pretenses. With the issue of our security apparatus and the projection of U.S. military power around the world being somewhat in question, it's not clear which comes first, the deterioration and decline of our international security or of our international monetary system. When one or the other goes, I think you're talking about not only the end of pretense, but the beginning of a very hard, hard reality. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.